Good morning, friends. Uh, today I'm going to jump into the book of Nehemiah. It was something that uh, we taught down at Hunt Prison and Angola Prison uh, almost two weeks ago. And there's something that just kind of jumped out at me, particularly when I got to Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'm going to title this message, Bring Me the Book. Now, most people agree that we live in an age of declining Bible literacy, even in the church. And on this front, we face two dangers. First, we may take the Bible for granted as if owning a Bible is the same as knowing the Bible. Yet we all own books we rarely read. It's quite possible for people of the book to become bored with the Bible because we think we know it better than we do. The second danger comes from a different direction. Because we live in a high-stress world, we're easily distracted. It's kind of hard for us to sit still for even 10 minutes without checking our smartphones. Often the good things of life, our work, our family, our hobbies, our social outings, and so on, squeeze out our time in God's Word. We never mean it to be that way, but it happens. That's one reason why we need to study Nehemiah chapter 8. This is the story of what happens when people, God's people, rediscover the Bible. By way of background, you need to know that Nehemiah was the man God raised up to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You can read that amazing story in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. Nehemiah 8 tells us of a great convocation that took place one week after the walls were finished. We can kind of think of the book of Nehemiah this way. The first half, chapters 1 to 6, tell us about the rebuilding of the walls. The second half, chapters 7 to 13, tell us about the rebuilding of the people. Now, taken together, the two halves teach us that the inside matters as much as the outside. Unless we build our lives on a solid foundation in God's word, no walls can protect us in the time of trouble. And boy, we certainly need this message today. Now, what happens when God's people rediscover God's word? Well, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, offers six answers to that question. Answer number one, a new inclination. Verses 1 to 3 introduce us to the story. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they had heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, when the people cry out, bring us the book, they're asking Ezra to read from the book of the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And what book is this? Well, it is the book. It is the book of God's word. I mean, there's no new book. This is the old book Moses wrote. This marks a new beginning in the history of God's people. This day was to prove a turning point. From now on, the Jews would be a people of the book. Lately, I've heard several people talk about the need for a great revival in the Church of Jesus. And given the sad state of the world and the spiritual confusion of the Church, I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. We need a great revival from the Holy Spirit. And here in Nehemiah 8, we have one mark of true revival. Revival is upon us when God's people once again hunger for God's word. When they say, bring us the book, we know that God's spirit has come in great power. And verse 3 says, they listened to the reading 
for at least six hours. That's amazing. I mean, evidently no one was watching the clock to make sure Ezra didn't go overtime. They didn't have a second service crowd to worry about. And the text even said they listened, did you get that? Attentively. I wonder how many of us would do, how many of us would do in a six-hour service. We're so media saturated that our minds start wondering after about 10 minutes or maybe a lot less than that. But these Jews were so hungry for God's word that they stayed the whole morning. Well, here's the second thing we learned. There's a genuine appreciation. In verses 4 to 6, it says, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose. Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now I want you to note how simple and unadorned this is. There's no pomp, no ceremony, no choir, no gold, no silver sacrifice, no offering, no praise band, no praise team, no projection. I mean, it's just a platform with Ezra reading it from the scrolls while the people listened intently. They stand out of respect for the word. They lift their hands and they bow down with their faces to the ground. Now, sometimes in our churches, we tend to think of worship as music. It's what we do when we sing or when the worship team leads or when we listen to a solo. Now, I've been to many services where they sang a lot, prayed a little, and preached a long time. But they didn't spend any time reading the Bible. Something always seems out of kilter in a service like that. I mean, standing, lifting of hands, and bowing to the ground are all kinds of, all ways of saying the reading of God's word is very important. It matters to us. When God's word is read in worship, it's no small thing. You're worshiping God when you listen to God's word. Now, certainly they didn't stand to hear Ezra's opinion. They stood to hear God's message. That ought to say something to us. Unless we honor God's word, we'll hardly read it, rarely understand it, and never be moved to tears. May God grant us a genuine appreciation for his word. And third, there's a clear explanation. That's verses 7 to 8. This is an interesting section. Listen to this. It said, Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akhob, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabed, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Did you catch those 13 almost unpronounceable names there in verse 7? These were the Levites who assisted Ezra. Now, we don't know exactly how this worked. Perhaps the 13 stood on the platform with Ezra, or perhaps they circulated throughout the crowd. Now, in part, this was necessary because the Torah was written in Hebrew, but some of the people spoke Aramaic and other languages. So someone had to make the sense of the words clear to them. Verse 8 offers us perhaps the clearest definition of preaching in the Bible. It's this, reading, explaining, and understanding. Well, that's what preachers do, or that's what they should do. They read the Bible and they explain it clearly so that the people understand what it says. That's what we sometimes call expository preaching. You take a text from the Bible and you explain it so the hearers understand what it means. Now, why is this method the best? 
Well, because it simply explains the Bible to people. It reveals eternal truth. It starts with what God has said and because it meets the deepest needs of the human heart. Ezra wanted to make sure that all the Jews understood what God was saying. That's why he had 13 men helping him with the interpretation and application. And that's where all good preaching must end. Now, I've listened to sermons where I heard the preacher wax eloquent and go down deep, but when I left, I didn't know any more about what God had said than when I came in. I'm afraid I sometimes think that's not very good preaching. We should preach so that even the youngest person can understand what God is saying. Well, fourth, there's personal application. We see this in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, why did they weep? It's because they finally heard and understood the word of God. The Holy Spirit brought its truth home to their hearts. And as the word hit home, they saw their true condition. And friends, if we don't weep nowadays, it may not be because we are better off. It may simply be that we have never let God's word come close to us. Weeping is a positive sign like feeling sore after you get a flu shot. It means the medicine is taking effect. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 remind us that God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword and lays bare the thoughts of the heart. That's why these people wept as they considered their own condition in the eyes of the Lord. And fifth, there's a compassionate demonstration. Verse 10 says, Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to everyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Nehemiah and Ezra and the other leaders told the people to stop weeping to start celebrating. Then they said, and when you do, send gifts to the poor so that they can celebrate with you. Verse 12 says that's exactly what the people did. In the midst of their grand celebration, they did not forget the poor in their midst. And friends, this is the inevitable result of God's word working in your life. Anytime we rediscover the Bible, we'll eventually come to whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. That's from Proverbs 19:17. Or as James 1:27 reminds us, the religion that God approves means visiting the widows and the orphans in their affliction. I mean, someday we'll be judged for what we've done to demonstrate our faith before a watching world. And six, there is a holy celebration. We see this in verses 11 to 12. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I hope you notice the progression in Nehemiah 8, 1 to 12. There's teaching and hearing and understanding and applying and demonstrating and joy. But this is not by chance. The end of verse 10 contains a phrase we've all heard before, the joy of the Lord is your strength. This doesn't happen automatically. I know Christ followers who never really find joy because they skip part of the plan. They never hear the word. They never apply it. They never obey it. So they never find joy. On the other hand, I know many who live in continual joy because they follow God's order. And when you take God's word seriously, you will find that his joy truly is your strength. 
C.S. Lewis has a good word at this point. He said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? You know something? He's right. People who think holiness is dull don't understand what it really means. When you meet a truly holy person, you feel drawn to them because they're so much like God. I think we've all known at least one person like that. Someone whose life radiates God in such a way that you are drawn to them. I mean, such people are filled with contagious joy. That ought to be the usual experience of those who know Jesus. I mean, holy people have holy joy. Nehemiah 8 shows us what happens when God's people rediscover God's word. I mean, look again at verse 12. All of this happened because they had understood the words that were declared to them. God's messages come to us in words we can understand. We have a message based on fact and grounded in history, a message that may be understood. The Bible is revealed truth. And what has God said? (laughs) Read the Bible and find out. I mean, there is a warning in all this that we must not miss, and it's this. Outward success is never the final measure of any church or any Christian. Now, we're not safe just because we're busy. We might have some good programs. We need a place to meet. We want uplifting music, and we need gifted leaders to guide us. But just as in the days of Nehemiah, it's not enough to build the outward walls to protect ourselves against attack. The inner commitment to the Word of God is just as important. And if that is not there, the outer walls will not protect us. We need spiritual resources to fight spiritual battles. That's why we need the Word of God. I mean, many of our problems stem from basic mistakes in the Christian life, and one of the most basic is ignoring God's Word. It's time for all of us to rediscover the Bible. I mean, that's a startling and amazing thing to say in this anything-goes world of ours. Christians believe something the people of the world find astounding. We believe that there is a God, that he has spoken, and that he has not stuttered. We believe there is a book. It is that book that reveals God to us, that shows us our true condition, that tells us the way of salvation through Jesus, and that leads us all the way from earth to heaven. Bring us the book, for in it we find the words that lead to eternal life. I'd say, pastors... Bring us the book when you stand up and preach. The teachers, bring us the book when you stand up to teach. Bring us the book and our churches will be strong. Bring us the book so that we might have the bread of life. Bring us the book and we'll be satisfied. Perhaps to make this personal, you should stop listening to this message right now and simply say, bring me the book. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.